chillin' and a you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and a accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doom. Is this thing on? Oh, yes, it is. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today I have a very special guest, my friend Rachel Smith, who is a virtual friend we've met online. She is a blogger, an author, and a consultant. She's author of Underspent, How I Broke My Shopping Addiction and Buying Habit Without Dramatically Changing My Life. And in that book, she talks about how she went a whole year without buying stuff. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you very much for having me. It's my pleasure. And you're really ahead of the times, I must say, with your focus on less stuff and more community. Actually, yeah, someone contacted me yesterday. I published the book in 2015 and someone said yesterday that it's more relevant now than it was then. So, and I think that is actually very true. I think so. I remember seeing on Facebook, you posted a couple of months ago, a cover photo of you with the label Frugalista down the bottom. Now, when I had the title of my book, which came out last February, Frugalista was, I thought, already quite a new term, but you were a Frugalista way back when. Uh, I think it was like 2015. It was with the Sunday newspaper. And I actually didn't really like the the phrase frugalista and we've spoken about this before because lots of people said to me they didn't want to quit shopping or buying buy less because it made them feel frugal and frugal was a really kind of negative word for Mm. them and they associated it with negative so I always had some real kind of issues with that word but yeah they did a summary of three families who'd spent uh, 2014 and early 2015 doing less shopping and not buying things, more sharing and community. So all the things really that we're experimenting with or testing and trying out right now. Exactly. And as you know, I'm doing my best to flip the negative image of frugal lifestyle and frugalistas and, and framing it as a positive. And I think people are looking at things differently now, aren't they? There's 2020 has been such a phenomenally crazy topsy-turvy year for so many people and I really liked what you did last week with the extending the meat so you would take your mints <laughs> and you can bulk it out because because and that's what people are doing they're at home and they're thinking oh I could go to the supermarket or the greengrocer and get this but actually I don't want to go out so how can I extend my mm. meals with what I've already got at home So that's really great advice. Yeah, I think so. And the interesting thing about red meat consumption is when you look at a number of health guidelines, and in particular the Heart Foundation, which we look at carefully because my husband Neil has a heart condition, the current advice is actually for fairly low levels of red meat. I don't know about the English diet. I suspect very similar to the Australian diet because so much of our diet has been influenced by many of our English ancestors. But red meat is kind of the cornerstone. They're talking like about a maximum, I think it's 350 grams a week. You often will go out to a restaurant and sometimes they'll have a steak that'll be 500 grams. (laughs) And that's just one meal. Exactly. So you've eaten your whole week, your week in like one meal. Exactly. So it sort of makes good nutritional sense in a way to bulk things out with legumes and, and vegetables anyway. Exactly. 
And I think one of the things that I've kind of seen from my own observations is people have been really busy. One of my friends was saying her commute to work is an hour and a half mm. each way. So it's three hours a day. So she's like, I've got 15 hours extra a week now by working at home. So that's life changing. And, you know, if you're working and you're trying to run a household and look after your kids and all of those things, you don't have time to, you know, look at a recipe book or, you know, plan your meals or look on the Heart Foundation website. It's just busy, busy, busy. So this actually is an opportunity and a gift of time that we'll probably never have again in our lifetime Mm -hmm. to kind of stop and think and look and cook from scratch and do all the things, I guess, that we've craved doing but never had the time to do. (laughs) But I was working from home anyway, but now I've got the added dimension of homeschooling or home learning for two kids. So I've probably been busier than ever. But I have noticed that nearly all of my friends have taken to baking in an amazing way. Sourdough bread has just taken off sourdough baking in a way that I would never have anticipated. And I guess that's going the, the kind of on the same theme that we were all shopping and buying and consuming because we didn't have time. So we mm. were just spending our way out of the crisis, the time crisis. And now that we've got time, you know, we can putter around at home and do the things uh, that we've always wanted to do. And I was reading a book about Denmark on Good Friday. And, you know, that's the lifestyle that we've all always craved. People want to be like, People in Copenhagen who have time, who cook from scratch, who do lovely things, who ride their bikes. And now we've actually been given that time. But it's whether we'll decide that's what we want (laughs) in the future or we'll want to be going back to going and buying the microwave meals and the packaged food or whether we will want to stay as we are now. Is it going to be a game changer, do you think? And I know you have long been working from home and... I'm gathering you quite like working from home from what you've posted. Do you think this is going to be a game changer with more people changing their working habits? I think it has the potential to absolutely change everything that we do. Whether the people with the power and the influence uh, will allow things to stay as they are right now, I don't know. I was at a conference in uh, New Zealand in March just before. I just got back the day before the travel ban. Oh, you were lucky. I was really lucky. It was Friday the 13th of March. I was like, (laughs) this could all go really wrong. But on the first, the conference, you know, the first day, the transport minister was there and everyone was talking about change. And I asked the first question of the conference, how do we create change when, you know, the Murdochs and the Packers and all of those elite families have so much power and influence? And Mm. I think that question is probably more relevant today than it was last month. Will this change stay, that we'll be able to do cooking more and spending more time at home with our family? Or will we go back to that busy, hectic life of sports and parties and conferences and travel and commitments and rushing around like headless chickens um, in the future? (laughs) Sounds like my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. (laughs) Self-chosen often. And I, I know you've been working from home for a while. Do you find it more productive? How do you structure your day? What are the benefits other than being able to cook more and not having to rush around so much? I've been working at home for about 18 months. I have an office downstairs. So it's a separate, you know, it's away from the house, below the house. I'm not a morning person at all. (laughs) 
I know, but I've really worked out. It took a long time. I used to be to have all this guilt and I'd feel bad. And I was just like, no, just write mornings off. So in mornings, I do like shallow work. I do emails. I'll do go on podcasts. I'll send out books. I'll do like bookkeeping and all the little stuff. And then the afternoons from three till seven or three till six, that's my productive time. I can do a, what I would do in two days in a consulting office, you know, like my old job mm-hmm. um, in, in one afternoon at home. I'm just like, and it's just zero disturbances. I just get work done. But I've worked out I can't work in the morning. So I have ideas. I have some of my best thinking in the mornings, but actually getting work done just in the afternoon. I block it like three or four hours and I just get work done. Yeah. So it was really good to work out what the rhythm is. And I don't compare myself to others. Some people are, oh, I do my best work in the morning. That's, that's great. But me, it's the afternoons. I'm really glad you shared that. And I think at one point, I remember you sharing your daily schedule of what worked for you. And that really resonated for me because I'm also not a morning person. I really do struggle with the mornings. And often too, when my kids are at school, by the time I get them organized, drop them off, come back and and whatever, and there's always a a mess in the house. By the time I clean that up, put on a load of washing, whatever. Before I know it, it's 10 a.m. And then I used to beat myself up because I'm like, well, corporate hours are kind of 8.30 to 9. Oh no, the day is nearly gone and woe is me and I'm so lazy and I'm not doing a lot. And I, I felt so much pressure to cram so much in and I'd sort of be running around and not actually being productive. But then I realized that often I was still working late at night, like till nine, sometimes till 9.30. So I was probably doing a lot more. I wasn't being interrupted by meetings about topics that I had no interest in <laughs> or colleagues interrupting my train of thought or other sorts of things. And there was, a, there was an article in The Economist that said the average office worker is only productive for two and a half or three hours a day. And most office workers are interrupted every six minutes and it takes them 23 minutes to get back to their task. So you're working away and your colleague comes and asks you a question and then you, you know, answer their question. And then it takes you 23 minutes to get back into the flow. So you can see that it's you just get nothing done and open plan offices are just they're just uh, a failing. Oh, yeah, they're really good for communication and seeing your co-workers, but they're a failing in getting work done because you just can't concentrate. Mm, that's a phenomenal uh, statistic. But when I do reflect on it, it was actually really hard if you needed to do strategic work, like writing something. It just would take a long time because people would interrupt you all the time. Yeah, exactly. And I found in the last contract I did while I was in-house in an organisation, I'd be there till like nine o'clock at night and because some people and people would be like, oh, what, what are you doing here? Are you doing overtime or something? I'm like, no, I'm doing what I should have been doing in the daytime. <laughs> there needs to get time. And the other thing was I used to get in at 10 because I knew that everyone went home at four. So I'd be like, at least from four to six, I can get some <laughs> solid work done. And people would say, you're late. And I'm like, I'm not late. You can start any time between six and 10. So I'm not late. But there was so much like stigma and association with the time that you got in that Mm. it was like well I was never late I did my eight hours a day but yeah so we need to almost use this time as well to scrap some of those uh social norms I guess 
Yeah, there is so much of a culture of presenteeism, isn't there? When I was still at full-time work, I had an arrangement where I'd work from home one day a week and I always struggled on that one day from home. Now, why would that be a struggle? I mean, you would think it would be easier. I had extra time because I wasn't commuting, so that was, I used to cycle and it'd take me about 40 minutes, so that was an extra hour and a half plus changing almost two hours in my day Mm. that I had. I worried a lot about the perception that I was actually busy. Now, there was an irony here because those days that I worked from home were the days that I would often organize to do admin that I had to do in the middle of the day because I worried about the perception of doing that when I was at work. So I'd arrange it to do it the day that I worked from home because I lived closer to the shops and it was more efficient. That was also the day that I arranged to do more strategic big picture thinking because I knew I had the quiet to do it. But yet I used to spend most of my day sending off lots and lots of emails to look like I was busy to prove I was actually working. Weird, really weird. And that's because we pay people for the time that they have their bum parked on the seat, (laughs) not for how they're productive. So when I moved to having my own consulting company, I charge people on what I produce. It's like this report is going to cost you this. If it takes me an hour to do it, then good on me. And if it takes me three weeks to produce it, then poor old me, I've lost out. But that's what we should be doing. We shouldn't be just trading time for money. We should be trading on results and the amount of work, real work that you actually produce. And I'm sure that really does encourage you, that model, to be super efficient and effective and to not to procrastinate. <laughs> and I was doing a project with this lady uh, down in Sydney and we'd done a couple together where we'd done work in Sydney, then we'd gone off and written parts of the report and then we'd spent hours on track changes and then we were like, right, next, next time we work together and we did this in December, we'll spend a day in an office in Sydney and we'll write the report together and we smashed that whole report out in a day in fact less than a day we went you know in the afternoon we were like oh let's go for a coffee because we finished so again it's about thinking smarter not working you know being paid for or thinking it's about the hours that you're sat on that seat Mm, it's a different way of thinking I wanted to go back to this issue of presenteeism and feeling like people couldn't be late because you wrote a really insightful article recently about the economic costs of people working the standard day and going to and from their offices. So I call it the billion dollar office start time. Around the world, governments and councils are spending billions every year building new roads so that everyone can drive and start at roughly 8am. Most people start at 8am in Australia Governments and councils are spending billions every year widening existing roads because we're driving and we all want to start work at roughly the same time. And they're also spending billions every year building park and ride car parks at train stations and at bus interchanges so that we can drive there or get the bus or train at like 7.30 and all start work at 8 o'clock. And so I'm saying, well, those are assets that are stranded assets for like 12 hours a day when they're empty or not used or mm. in the in the context of park, like park and ride, they're completely deserted for uh, 12 hours a day and all of the weekend. So we need to start thinking differently and using demand management rather than just building. Mm, that's a good point, isn't it? I mean, so much of our infrastructure is geared to us rushing into offices or factories 
to work for certain hours and then it being idle for the rest of the time. And there's also this trend, particularly in Canberra where I live, with new suburbs that are being built that are very far away from where the offices are. And there aren't local businesses or many local businesses there. And some commenters have said they're basically just building sleeping dormitories. There's no option other than to get in a car and drive to the place of work. Absolutely. So we're building those roads or widening the roads or building public transport. So, and I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. You know, there are places where there there are times and places when they're needed, but we shouldn't just be, you know, so Fred can buy the cheap house in that location far away. The council, the government builds the road so they can drive to work. The road's then empty or fairly quieter during the best part of the day. And then everyone's driving home on the same road to go back, to go to sleep, and then to do it all over again the next day. And I go horse riding at a location that's opposite a park and ride car park. Mm -hmm. People drive their cars there and get the bus into Brisbane CBD. And so I monitor uh, that park and ride (laughs) in a kind of nerdy, geekish kind of way. And yeah, like it's busy on the odd occasions where I've been there in the daytime, like on a normal working time. It's packed. But in the evening, Saturdays and Sundays, there's not a car in sight. And it's like, well, that could be used for a farmer's market or Mm. it could be used for a community event. Or it could be that someone can rent that off of the council or the government and hold some kind of event or something in or a pop concert or kids skate park or something during the weekend so all you know like governments pay millions for like bus parking at night so they pay the bus operators millions mm-hmm. and it's like well you could just put a boom gate in and have it as bus parking overnight and then rather than spending twice you're only spending once uh, so yeah it's just about being smarter with our taxpayer money, basically. Mm, I, don't, I guess people often don't think about dual uses for things. You're thinking about a single use, aren't you? Exactly. Thinking about a Monday to Friday solution. You're not thinking about a Saturday and Sunday solution. You're not thinking about other aspects, other uh, groups within the community who might want to use those facilities for different purposes. Absolutely. And, you know, we've seen the model where lots of churches use like a school hall instead of having a church or lots of churches rent out their car park during uh, the weekdays to, to people who are commuting because the church typically m- mostly use their their car park in the evenings and at weekends so just really say we've got an asset or a resource here how can we use it more efficiently so that it's it's a better outcome and more benefit for everyone just like people who've got a lawnmower you use your lawnmower just for your lawn or actually what about sharing it with the people in your street? And then someone says, well, I've got a chainsaw and someone else has got this. <laughs> and you spread it around rather than everyone having everything. You know, it's like, why do 400 people who live in the same suburb each have a lawnmower? There could be a shed at the end of one street that's got all the tools in. And you might pay like 10 bucks a year or something. But we don't all need to have everything. No, that's a very good example and I'm laughing because my church actually does operate a mowing social enterprise. They recognise that people on low incomes, particularly those who might be in public housing, probably don't have access to things like a lawnmower or the ability to maintain one or use it, particularly if there's health or other issues or they're older and they're vulnerable. So they created a social enterprise 
based around lawn mowing. Wow. And yeah, so it's 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 less lawn mowers that you need to buy, isn't it? So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 actually you've made a really good point there because it's not just buying it, it's the maintaining mm. it. And you know, if it's a big lawn mower, you need to go and get it serviced, like you get your car serviced. So it's all those extra costs as well. And we tend to kind of blindside those costs sometimes, you know, like people say, oh, with my car, it only costs like $5 to get from X to Y. But then there's still like your rego and your insurance and your servicing. Depreciation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That we, that, that we don't include when we think about the costs. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's huge. And it's really difficult sometimes to calculate the actual cost of say a second car that you've got idle in, in your garage I like to think of it about costing about 5000 when I think about the registration the insurance the servicing depreciation car loan repayments but it is difficult because it depends a little bit on the age of the vehicle how much maintenance it requires how much depreciation if it's a brand new vehicle there's going to be a lot more depreciation but certainly having a second vehicle that you really really use is going to cost you a lot of money Absolutely. And if you're only using it like once or twice a week, then that's a really expensive thing that you've got sat <laughs> at your house. Pretty much. And I know you're a very passionate cyclist, so I'm sure you've done the maths too about how much cheaper cycling is and how much it can benefit your health if you take that up instead of a second car. Absolutely. And, for, and that's another thing that's happening now is that because people aren't rushing into the city or going here, there and everywhere, then people can say, actually, I can ride my bike to the local supermarket or to the green grocer and get my things rather than taking the car because now I've got more time. You know, I'm not spending three hours a day commuting or I'm not spending an hour and a half a day commuting. So I've got the time. I can explore my local area. Loads of people have said to me, I've never walked around my local area. I've never had time. Really? Crazy. You know, they're like, people have said, yeah, people always said, well, I go into the city every day for work and on Saturdays there's like kids sports and whatever and on Sundays we go to the beach. And So this is the first time I've ever walked around my neighbourhood and I'm like, how long have you lived there? And they're like, oh, 10 years. And it's, so it's just like, so the bike gives us an opportunity to ex explore our local areas in a really cost-effective and healthy way. So that's another big tick for cycling. I, yeah, I love my bike and I love my husband who replaces the brake pads when I frequently wear them out from braking too much <laughs> on my bike. Actually, even if I didn't have my Neil, bike maintenance is still a lot cheaper than car maintenance and if you're yeah. handy, you can do a lot of it yourself as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's still yeah. a lot cheaper. I want to go back to stuff because I know obviously you've written a book all about stuff and I was having this conversation with my dad recently where he sort of said, oh, well, when this is all over, we will really be rethinking our relationship with stuff because so many of us has, have realised that stuff is not the way. Then some articles are saying, but stuff is always going to be with us and our relationship to stuff isn't going to change and marketers have for so long talked about how stuff makes us happy. And so as soon as we start seeing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, marketers are going to be there. In fact, they already are in terms of online selling. Are you more positive than I am on this? Do you think this is really going to be transformative in terms of people wanting less stuff or is it we still going to have that, that hyper-consumer culture? I think we will still have a consumer culture because if you look on those Instagram brands, and I follow a few brands just to see how they do their marketing, 
they're really selling hope, they're selling the perfect life, and they're selling lifestyle. And mm. so they're really, really pushing that now. At the moment, there's a real increase in online shopping because people are doing the yoga class and then they have to buy the <laughs> new yoga mat or they're doing the makeup class on Zoom and then they need to buy the new makeup. Or as one person said, you know, we're stuck at home and you're buying lots of small discretionary luxuries to make yourself feel better. On another side, I think loads of people are doing loads of decluttering Mm. And there's been a really big problem in the UK where people have fly tipped or they've just dumped loads and loads of stuff outside the charity and the op shops because people have decluttered all of this stuff. And then I guess it's like, well, that was a lot. I've worked really hard and spent a lot of money on all of that stuff. I don't want to keep it in my garage or my spare room because that's really ugly looking at how long I had to work to pay for all those things that now I'm giving away. So they've kind of got rid of them quickly. And then I think a third point is that people are at home now. And if your house is really cluttered or you've got loads of stuff, you're going to get really annoyed with that stuff. Because mm. normally you've been out of the house for like nine or ten hours a day. You've been busy doing kids sports and all kinds of things on Saturday. On Sundays you've been out going to the beach or visiting family. So people have never actually spent much time in their homes. Some people have said to me, I never really spent time in my house. And so if you're in a house that's full of clutter and stuff you don't like, then I'm hoping that will make some people think, ah, oh, why on earth did we buy X, Y and Z? But then some people have got out things that they've bought that they've never used, like bread makers and soda streams. They're like, oh, yeah. I can make bread. I've got this bread maker that we never used. Or we bought this utensil, which was everyone else had got one. So we bought one. And now finally, we're going to use it. It's hard to tell what's going to happen. I mean, the macroeconomists will tell us that we're going into an L-shaped recession. And the plateau at the bottom will be about 18 months. So it will be really, really tough for some people. But again, I guess if you've got a little bit of money and you're feeling really down, then you might just buy something from your Kmart or your Target to make yourself feel better. But as we know, that's a vicious cycle where you buy X to make you happy. You're happy for a day. Then you're back to feeling rubbish again. And then you have to buy the next thing. And people say shopping isn't in Well, you know, you said you were addicted to shopping. And it's not an, an addiction, but it is because people are still at all the shopping centers where the shops are open and people are still buying online. It's really hard to say what will happen, but I really hope that people, even if they don't change, I hope people will look at their shopping patterns and how much they were spending. And if you have got a permanent job and you're not going out buying your lunch every day and buying you know the clothes at lunchtime impulsively mm -hmm. then you actually have got a real opportunity to save a lot of money mm, that's a good point too and less cost in commuting as well less petrol yeah. and other costs that you're spending yeah 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 so some people could be saving you know 200 or 300 dollars a week easily mm. one final question rachel do you have a frugalista tip use up what you've already got so that's step six in in my underspent book and that's to go through all your stuff in your house and use what you've got. And actually, I was Skyping my sister in the UK on Sunday night. And I was like, oh, I was going to make an apple crumble. And my sister was like, oh, have you got flour? Because it's really hard to get flour in the UK. Mm. And I was like, no. And she said, 
oh, well, you can't make it. And I was like, no. And then I was like, oh, I've got some of those, you know, the crunchy muesli. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'll just put it in a bag and smash it up. And so I used that instead. So it's about using it up, but it's about putting it together with problem solving. Mm. And, you know, you might think, oh, I want some new cushion covers for my sofa. And it's like, well, have a look around in your cupboards. You might have got some or move the cushions around or use what you've got. Be inventive, solve your own problems and just think a bit outside the box. Thinking outside the box to solve your problems. That sounds yeah. like a great yeah, way I to like end. That. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rachel, how can people find you? I've got the Underspent Facebook page and I share top tips and content from the book. I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter under the handle Cycling R Smith. I've got a website called cyclingrachelsmith.com and I also write for an engineering and architecture magazine called Sourceable. Mm, you've got some great articles there. But you can find me all over the internet. <laughs> no, I really like your, yeah. your, your very thoughtful pieces that make us think about the, the bigger questions about infrastructure and communities and not just build it and maybe they might use it, but about thinking about things that are going to be right fit for the community at the right time and more cost effective. Absolutely. And that's the United Nations global goal number 12, which is responsible consumption and production. And that's really what it's all about. Mm, that's a very big picture way to look at it. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Lovely. And for anyone who wants to follow this discussion about stuff and working from home, please join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. And myself, I'm Joseph McGrail Baitup. Got an accentuate the positive eliminate the negative latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In Between.